Once again, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other. Um, Before we dive into God's Word this morning, let me just say again how personally thrilled and pumped I am to have John and Trey with us this morning. UIM has just a very special place um, in the Gilbert family's hearts, just personally. So when we moved to Tallahassee back in the mid-90s and I began part-time youth pastor work here, and Susan and I were, were newly married, did not have kids, and the church said, All right, your very first assignment is to go to the inner city of New Orleans with 12 youths, and I'm looking around, and some of those parents of those youth are here. They're now grandparents, and um, it was a transformative um, 10 days for us. Um, I remember traveling over, Susan was sick, she was pregnant, Um, we were in the inner city, and it was amazing. I mean, I would just say that this partnership with Urban Impact Ministries and Castle Rock is one that has blessed us as much or more than than we have blessed or served them, and so really excited about tonight coming together and celebrating. I'm just also, let me just say this thing, and this is kind of a segue into our text this morning, to look at John and he, you know, he makes fun of, of me and my hair. He's like the Highlander. He hasn't aged in like 30 years. Like he's just like this immortal warrior roaming the plain. But I just look at his life and ministry and just see an enduring faithfulness in a, in a time and a season where, where Christian leaders seemingly fall left and right just to see patient, faithful, ordinary, um, um, day after day ministry um, is just super encouraging. And in, and in reality, it's, it's the, the topic of our text this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy. We're continuing this series, Order in the House. And Paul, in our, in our short little passage this morning, is exhorting Timothy to precisely the kind of ministry and endurance and perseverance that I see with John and with Castle Rock and that, honestly, church, I aspire to um, for myself. So we're going we're gonna to read these three verses together, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. If you can, willing and able, please stand with us for the reading of God's Word. You can follow along on the screen. Paul speaking, and he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Lord, we want to one day stand before you and have you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Father, um, reintroduce us. Introduce us maybe for the first time this morning that this is a fight for faith, that we are not passive observers in our Christian walks, but you have called us to actively engage the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, of walking before you, spurring one another on. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would press this into our bones this morning and that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, you know that Paul did one of these autobiographical excursion sorts of things by reminding Timothy that God had saved him, Paul, the chief of sinners, the worst sinner possible. And we talked about how this wasn't really hyperbole. Paul was a pretty bad dude. But, but what was amazing is that God actually appointed Paul to be an apostle, to be a minister of the gospel, that, that God had given Paul this stewardship, this faith once for all delivered to the saints, this apostolic deposit, and told Paul, go forth build my church, proclaim the gospel. But you know, Paul is nearing the end of his race. Paul is in the twilight of his ministry. It's only going to be a couple of months after this where he is going to be imprisoned and then writing his final letter to Timothy. And here in verse 18, Paul tells us his agenda right off. And this is so important for us to understand. He says, Timothy, this charge I entrust to you. In other words, I'm going away, Timothy, and we're like two we're like two runners on the track, and I'm passing this torch to you, and after I am long gone, you're going to need to run your race, just as I faithfully have run my race. Now, Paul's central charge to Timothy as he hands off the torch, so to speak, is found in verse 18. It's where everything in this passage orbits around. It's where we're going to spend our time. He tells Timothy, wage the good warfare. In the Greek, literally, fight the good fight. And so what Paul is doing here, he is co-opting a military term. It's a term that was used when there were conflicts and hostility, and it was time to call the troops to battle. It was time to sound the alarm. There's invaders at the gates. And so there is an urgency. And as Pastor Tabidi says about this passage, Paul, in essence, is charging, calling Timothy to a form of kind of, of, of spiritual pugilism. I've always wanted to say that in a message, right? A spiritual pugilism to, to, be, a, to be a boxer, a biblical boxer, a gospel gladiator, so to speak. And by the same token, you and me. Now, we have to ask, now you may, I mean, you, you may be asking, Pastor Paul, look, I just came in here to hear the saxophone, and, and like you're telling me about war and getting militant and fighting and, whoa, slow, slow your roll. And what we want to ask is why. Why is Paul issuing this charge? Why so much urgency? Why this military militant language? What, what, what is the nature of this war, Pastor Paul, that the Apostle Paul is calling us to? And we're going to stick with this military terminology, and there's going to be three points this morning, and here, here they are. Number one, we're going to talk about the battlefront. Like, what, what's, the, what, what's, the, what's the situation going on here that would necessitate this sort of call to arms? Two, what is the actual war? What is Paul calling Timothy and us to do? And finally, what are the weapons, the tools that he gives to Timothy and to us to fight? So that's where we're heading. Let's look at the battlefront first, 
And if you're a Harry Potter nerd fan like myself, you, you remember in the Order of the Phoenix when Hagrid turned to Harry and he said, Harry, there's a storm coming and we all best be ready when she does. Well, that storm is coming to the church in Ephesus. But understand that this was not a physical attack from the outside. This storm was actually in the form of a spiritual attack from the inside. So, so Paul mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander. And if you were here in our previous weeks, you, 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 we've said a couple of things about this. But these were actually most likely elders in the church in Ephesus. These were a men who aspired to be sort of Christian rabbis in the Jewish tradition. In other words, they, they wanted to be seen as important. They wanted to be seen as sophisticated. They wanted to be seen as suave and recognized and respected and honored. And so they went around talking about sort of obscure ethereal topics like myths and genealogies. And these were all sorts of, of things that were kind of being percolated in the church but what was fundamentally happening is that these men were leading people not to focus on Christ, not to center their lives upon the gospel, but upon everything else. And here, here you can already hear the echoes for ourselves culturally, right? There are so many things competing for our time. There are so many things competing for our attention. There are so many things that animate us in this season, and so it was with these false teachers, and the end result, okay, was that they were spreading this false teaching um, to people in the church. Now, b- before we look at this, let me just remind you something here. These were not obscure figures in Paul's life. These were fellow workers. These were fellow laborers. They had spent time in elder meetings together. They undoubtedly had broken bread. They had shared communion. They had arms linked, prayed for one another. These were probably the men he helped to plant this church at Ephesus in 10 years prior to this. But here, Paul is having to address something that you know is breaking his heart. Now, in writing 2 Timothy, which is just probably a few months after this, listen to what Paul has to say about these men, particularly Hymenaeus. He said, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, again, we get a clue that Luke might have very well, Dr. Luke, the physician, might have been helping uh, the Apostle Paul pen this letter because he uses this medical term, gangrene. There was a spiritual gangrene, an infection, a deadly infection that was spreading through the church in, in Ephesus. And Paul says it was upsetting the faith of some. And, we, and that term, by the way, upsetting, doesn't mean like people were getting their feelings hurt or, Paul, or, or these teachers were being a little mean. The word literally means their teaching was waging a revolution in the souls of those in the church. There was a spiritual revolution that was happening. People were being turned away from the gospel and from Jesus Christ. And there is no more central issue that's crucial for the life of a church and in your life and in my life personally. But here's the, here's the, 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 it's, here's the irony of this. 
in teaching this and trying to lead people to a deeper understanding of this of, of these particular teachings, not only were they upsetting their faith, but look back at the text. It says they were making shipwreck of their own faiths. See, false teachers don't just lead people astray. They are destroying their own souls. Now, that word shipwreck, now Paul tells us that he was involved in no less than three different shipwrecks. Okay? One of those is recorded for us in Acts 27. And we don't know for sure whether Timothy was with Paul when they were shipwrecked on the island of Crete. We don't know. Um, he very possibly could. But even if he wasn't, he most certainly knew about this firsthand. This was when, the, when, when Paul's ship literally ran, ran aground on the rocks of the shore and disintegrated, and they were stranded on this island. And Paul uses this term shipwreck to, deter, to, to refer to those who have fallen victim to apostasy. Now, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I'll repeat this for us here. Apostasy is, very, is, is, is the same but different than mere unbelief. So, so there's a whole world of people out there, church, who've never professed faith in Christ that we would look at and say, those are unbelievers. They need the gospel. We're called to take it to them. Apostasy is a whole different kind of unbelief. Apostasy are those people who at one time have professed Christ. They've made professions of faith. They've maybe been prominent teachers and leaders. Maybe they've been in your small group. Maybe you've been married to one or are. It could be a child, but someone who has at one time professed faith, been baptized, made that public profession, but has now walked away or shown themselves to be an unbeliever. And sometimes this can take the form of just an outright denunciation. So a year or two ago, you're familiar with him, Josh Harris, famously wrote, I kissed dating goodbye. He literally kissed his faith goodbye. Went very public. I'm leaving my family. I'm on Instagram. I'm telling the whole world I don't believe this stuff anymore, and I'm walking away. That's, that's one form of apostasy. Another form of apostasy is someone who might appear to be very orthodox in their theology. They might appear to love truth and be faithful in teaching, but they've made shipwreck of their moral lives. And so over the last week or two, many of us have been dumbfounded, let's be honest, as we've heard the reports, allegedly, alleged reports of Robbie Zacharias and the life of deception and hiddenness where seemingly, allegedly, his conscience had been seared for years, if not decades, with unmentionable things we won't even talk about here. And as I said, this can, this can be something that we see publicly. Boy, this can be something that you walk through privately, personally. See, and I think there's a reason that Paul mentions these men by name. Why does he tell them? Why does he mention their names? For a couple of reasons. One, things that have a public ramification or a public trajectory have to be dealt with publicly. These were public teachers. But secondly... It's just a reminder for us, right? Apostasy is always personal, right? 
These are, these are people we've known. And, and Paul's like, Timothy, we, th- these are our fellow warriors, Timothy. They have fallen away. And so I'm telling you, Timothy, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. And the question who is, and this is, this is the question for us and for Timothy, whom exactly is Timothy supposed to be fighting? So that brings us to our second point, the war. So let's go back to the text. Paul says here, wage the good warfare, verse 18. Now, some of us, and I'll raise my hand, are conflict adverse. We don't like conflict. We, 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 don't, we, we, we shy away from conflict. And, and maybe that describes most of us. I don't know. There's some people in here I know probably love a good fight, love a good scrap, you know, you, 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 see, you see a controversy online or on Facebook or on Twitter, and you're right in the middle of it, we'll pray for you. But the rest of us are a little more chicken than that, right? And, and those, there, there, there are certain fights that are bad. But let's remember, church, there are some fights that are good. Paul says here, fight the good fight. Now, what is this good fight that Paul is addressing here. It's, it's, it's what I mentioned before. It's the stewardship we've all been given. Because one day we will all stand before the Lord and we will give an account of how we have stewarded what he's entrusted to us. Husbands, you'll stand before the Lord, I believe, and account, give an account for your marriage. Parents with your children. Elders with your church people. Community group leaders with your small group members. Bosses with your employees. You get the idea, right? In other words, God has given all of us a stewardship. Something that he has said, look, your life is not on this earth, is not forever. It's very temporal. It's very short. And so for this little time that you're here, I'm going to give you this. And I want to entrust it to you. And one day I'm going to come back and we will give an account of this stewardship. And so that's why Paul says this is the good fight. This is a good fight, church. Now, when we think about who Paul is telling Timothy to fight with, it's very easy to assume that clearly, well, Pastor Paul, it's very obvious the, the, the people he's going to fight with are the false teachers, right? They're the ones that are the, propagating the false doctrine. They're the ones that are upsetting people's faith. They're going to need to be the ones that Timothy deals with. And so Paul's exhorting Timothy to get in there, Timothy, Timothy, and do your thing. And let me just say, that piece is certainly there. And that's certainly important, particularly as we look at the unfolding, okay, of the rest of this book. But can I tell you, that's not the emphasis here. Hymenaeus and Alexander are here by way of example. In other words, Paul is entrusting this stewardship to Timothy, and he's telling him to wage the good warfare because he knows that the the, the primary battle, and it's the same thing for us, the primary battle is not the one that we're going to wage externally. It's going to be the one that we wage within our own souls. See, look back at the text, you'll notice this. Wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. 
that's directed to Timothy personally. So in other words, Timothy, as you're waging the good warfare, hold on to faith. Timothy, as you're waging the good warfare, hold on to a clear conscience. See, the first fight that Timothy has to have before he can venture into the arena of dealing with the false teachers, as important as that is, Paul says, Timothy, they've fallen away. And now as my son in the faith, I'm exhorting you, don't you fall away though too. Fight the good fight, Timothy. Stay in the game. I know it's hard. I know you're misunderstood. I know you're suffering. I know there's afflictions. I I know you're in the middle of controversy. Don't imitate them, Timothy. That's what he's saying. Imitate me as I come to the end of my race. This is a consistent theme, by the way, all throughout this letter. First, Timothy 6.12. This is what he says. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now listen to this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Guys, you got to understand, Paul had a deeply personal relationship with Timothy. This wasn't academic. And by the way, the fight for faith never is. Apostasy never is. And so Paul, in an effort to exhort Timothy, draws his attention, reminds him of a very personal experience in Timothy's life that he references in verse 18. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, at some point in Paul's and Timothy's ministry, there was a time when Timothy went from making a profession of faith to saying, I want to commit my life to the gospel ministry. This probably happened in Paul's second missionary journey when he went through Lystra. Remember, in Paul's first missionary journey, Timothy's mother and grandmother were most likely saved with the gospel, and probably Timothy too as a young boy or adolescent. Well, by the time Paul returns 10 years later or, or, or so, Timothy is now grown up and people are coming to Paul and they're saying, Paul, listen, we, 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 we have to introduce you to Timothy. And he's a little shy, a little timid, but man, he's got promise. He's faithful. He's, he's, got, he's got certain gifting. And apparently there was a time where the leaders of the church in Lystra with Paul came around Timothy and commissioned him in the gospel service. They, they ordained him, to use a contemporary term. And this is what Paul references in 1 Timothy 4. Listen to this. He says, Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, why in the world, in, this, in the middle of all this, where, where Paul is exhorting Timothy and us in the fight for faith, why is he referencing Timothy back to his call to ministry? Because there's something significant to be said here, that when people are struggling in their faith, When you are struggling, or someone you know is struggling who's going to walk away from their marriage, or is contemplating a catastrophic moral decision, or just as a point of discouragement where they are very, very tempted to give up, it is entirely appropriate to remind them of the profession they made. See, this this is why I don't believe baptism should ever be a private event. 
I don't believe communion should ever be a private event because those are corporate signs given to the body for us to point back to, to point our children back to, to point ourselves back to and and say, remember that time when you were in front of the church and you made that public profession of faith and you committed your life to, to Christ? This is why we do public membership. These are all like opportunities where the body of Christ comes around one another and we remind ourselves of our promises. This is why we have public weddings with witnesses. Now, why is that? Because those witnesses are not there just to go have a good time at the reception afterwards and do mean things to the groom the night before, although that happens, right? That's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of having people stand with you in your wedding, to have a pastor to do the wedding, is so that you can remind each other, these are the vows you're taking. Be reminded. Persevere. Don't give up. Be strong. We're with you. Just as you made these public professions of faith, Timothy, let us walk alongside you now. Be reminded. And so in the midst of this, of this situation in the church in Ephesus, as important as it's going to be to address false teaching, as important as it is to fight a big war, the most fundamental foundational war for you and for me in, 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 in our Christian walk, church, is the one for our hearts. See, see a lot of times we're captivated by what's happening out there. And the big picture problems and what, what, what is the church saying about this? And what is the church saying about that? And a lot of times our fight needs to begin internally. Who are you fighting? What are you fighting? And thirdly, what are you fighting with? So let's look at these weapons that Paul gives to Timothy or points Timothy towards in his fight for faith. And they're going to be the ones that we, that we need as well. He tells Timothy to hold, holding faith and a clear conscience. That word holding means to possess. It's an active word. It's not a passive verb. So I can very well say I am now holding this thing of mostly drinking water, right? And, and I, can, I can say that, but I can also say I am no longer holding it. I'm no longer holding this bottle. That's not biblical faith. A lot of times, especially in the South, please hear me, we equate coming down the aisle with coming to faith, and they are not necessarily the same thing. Biblical faith is the ongoing holding of this. It's, 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 a, it's a never letting go as God empowers us with his spirit to hold. He holds us. We hold on to him. The fight for faith, in other words, is active. It's continuous. It's ongoing. It's not passive. And I just want you to consider there's a, a gazillion verses like this, but here's just three just to, to, to tell you how the scripture writers speak about this idea of walking in faith. Hebrews 4.14, let us what? Hold fast our confession. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 10.24, stir up one another to love and good deeds. This is Paul's same spirit here as he's charging Timothy. 
Now, let's unpack this for a second. What does he mean when he talks about holding faith and the clear conscience? And when he talks about faith, I think he's referring to here the faith, the, 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 the standard of truth, of doctrine that all of us are called to embrace in terms of our profession, our, our theological statement of faith, orthodoxy. And, and, and it's a reminder that apart from the revealed truth of the Word of God, okay, there is no Christian faith. In fact, if, we're, if, we're, if we have a religious life or attempting to know Jesus apart from the Word, okay, we are just creating a Jesus and a religion of our own making. And so Paul is pointing to this idea, Timothy, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you, you, you've got to hold on to those. However, Paul says that's not sufficient in and of itself. You see, there's a lot of people who are quick to fight for doctrine, who are quick to fight for orthodoxy, who are quick to mix it up. But Paul reminds Timothy by, by bringing in this idea of conscience that it's not a sufficient thing. It's a necessary thing to embrace doctrine, but in and of itself, it's not sufficient. There has to be a corresponding commitment to pursue holiness. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to the passage in 1 Timothy 3 when it talks about the qualifications of the elder. Do you realize that in that list, there is only one quality that is oriented towards gifting? Okay, and that's the, that's the qualification of, of teaching. That an elder, a spiritual leader, has to be someone who knows doctrine, expounds doctrine, teaches doctrine, can discern truth and error. But church, do you realize that every other one of the, of the characteristics of a qualified leader all involve character? Every single one. It is character, character, character par excellence for the Apostle Paul. And this is why he brings in this word of not just holding on to faith, as crucial as that is, and we're going to see it fleshed out in the rest of this letter, but there's also a corresponding commitment to hold on to your conscience, to guard your heart, to watch your life and doctrine closely. Now, what do we mean by conscience? Because we still may think about, you know, Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, let conscience be your guy. What, what, what do we mean by conscience? Okay, Sandy Wilson says a couple of good things about this, I think, that are really good. Conscience is our internal, God-given, spiritual radar that helps us understand what is right and what is wrong, what we must do, what we must not do. And understand something from Romans 1 and 2, it's very clear, every single person in the history of the world is born with a conscience. Every person is born with a conscience, an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. But here, Paul is, is saying something specific about the conscience. He's saying, Timothy, you are called to keep a clear conscience. See, when we violently reject our conscience. In other words, if there is something in our life that we know that according to, the God, to God's word that we are not pushing back on, that, that we are sort of passively engaged in, that, that we are not in the active state of repenting from, and I don't mean struggling, 
Okay, if you're struggling, that's good. It's a sign that God's spirit is waging war with your flesh and your soul. But if you have given yourself over to a particular sin and are not engaged in the fight for faith, then the Bible, you were doing what the Bible calls searing your conscience. You were suppressing that internal heartbeat of the Holy Spirit of your conscience, which is telling you, do this or don't do that. And Paul says when we violently reject our conscience in that way, eventually, eventually, just like he said with Hymenaeus, it's spiritual gangrene over our whole life. Right? That stuff is never just contained to one area. It, it, it creates such a tension within our hearts, such a state of spiritual schizophrenia where as best we can, we try to suppress it, but then it, but then it begins to leak out in other, other ways. As we're searing our conscience in one way, we have to, in one area, we have to lie about it in another. And as we lie about it in another, we have to compromise in this way. Do you see what happens? It, it, it begins to spread. And Paul's saying, Timothy... Keep a clear conscience. Now, a couple things we want to say about this. First of all, conscience in and of itself, as important as it is, is not infallible. Okay, it's not infallible. Sometimes we will have a, a conviction about something that we believe is a sin, when in reality the Bible says that's not a sin. There's other times there's things that, oh, I've got a totally clear conscience about that one, Pastor Paul, but the Bible actually speaks quite clearly to it. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? And the, 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 so, so low-hanging fruit here. So, so take, the, take the issue of alcohol. Some of you believe that as a Christian, not a drop of alcohol shall touch thy lips. And let me just say, if that's your conviction, don't. Don't violate your conscience, don't violate your conscience. Now, I happen to know most of you, and most of you actually don't believe that at all, do you, right? You, you believe the Bible regulates alcohol and not abolishes it and, and th that sort of thing, and, and it's, you have a clear conscience. Let me take something a little more controversial, though. Something like media or movies and video. I happen to believe, my personal conviction, that for many of us, our consciences are totally seared in this area. That things that we give over to freedom in Christ, and we're not restrained by the law, Pastor Paul, and we're under grace, that somehow we like do the spiritual jujitsu around all those commands, okay, which talk about like, not letting unwholesome talk fill our mouths or looking at images, even though it's pretend, okay, on a, on a movie. Guys, let me just say this. I've got a very sensitive conscience with those kind of things. And the reason I have a sensitive conscience is because I seared my conscience for much of my life. And so now some of you can recommend a particular movie or series, and it might be just fine for you, but I'll read the description and I'll be like, I can't do it. I know what's going to happen to me if I watch that. It's going to take my mind here. It's going to take my mind there. It'll do this to my soul. Okay. And, and that's just what I have to abide by. Now, sometimes You'll say, but, but Pastor Paul, this one's really good, okay? And I'll watch it anyway. And guess what happens? I've seared my conscience. I'm back, I'm back to the same place. I say all that to say that 
we, you have to follow your conscience in these things. I have to follow our, my conscience in these things, but let's make sure we're training our consciences with the word of God. That's always the great hedge, okay? That's always the great protector. And the way that we, we say, well, how do we bring these things together, Pastor Paul? Faith, holding on to faith, having a clear conscience. How do we bring these together? And I think the answer is just plainly obvious from the text, guys. We bring these things together in the church. That's what the church is for. That's what relationships are for. You see, when he brings up Hymenaeus and Alexander, I want you to know these aren't distant figures in Paul's life. These are, con- these are men in which he had real spiritual conversations with. The- these are men I can see him very much putting his arm around early in their ministry and saying, you know, when you said this, that was, that, there was something off about that. Or, you know, I noticed when you did this, something, and guys, that's, by the way, it's called discipline. It's not a bad word. It's where we get the word what? Discipleship. It's just the one another of body life where we come alongside one another in the fight for faith and we spur one another on to to love and good deeds. And Paul tells us actually how this happens. See, we typically think about correction, not just in a negative sense, but in just like a full-on confrontational sense. But listen to the way Paul describes this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see that? He's talking about people who've gone astray. And this is what the local church is for. This is what the local church is all about, where we are coming alongside one another. We are gently, kindly, clearly, urgently, winsomely, all those qualifications, but nonetheless, okay, we're, we're coming alongside one another in the fight for faith to make sure, are we holding on to the faith? Do we have a clear conscience? Why? So that we can persevere. Now, it's only in the most extreme circumstances, and Paul mentions it here, when someone refuses that discipline of the Lord, the, whole, the, the, the gentle, private, one-to-one, one-to-three, small group sorts of correction, it's only when it exceeds that point where this becomes public. And Paul mentions that here in verse 20. Look at this. It's, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And this is Paul's way of saying, he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, When someone persists in unrepentant sin, when someone persists in doctrinal error and leading others astray, there comes a time when the most loving thing that the church can do is to set them outside the fellowship in order to, one, protect the church. Okay, protect the church. That's really, really crucial. But secondly, and I love this, to teach them to instruct them. 
You see, the point of church discipline in that way is always restorative. It's, it's, all, it's, it's never meant to be punitive. It's always meant to be a loving hand of discipline to draw back people to the faith. This is what Paul says when he says that they may learn. They may learn. In other words, that they may be taught. They may be instructed so that they can change, so that they can repent. And for as heavy as this passage is, this actually is a, is, a, is a note of hope that Paul leaves with Timothy about this matter. And here's, and here's the point of hope. Please hear this. For apostates, as long as they have breath, apostasy is not ever necessarily the final word. There's always, always hope of people returning to Christ. There's always, always, always the hope of repentance that someone can say, I, I want to hold on to the faith, the truth. I want to, to have a clear conscience. And guys, this is, this is, this is true of leaders. Boy, it's, it's just as much true, though, of, of people in your life. There may be people you have been praying for for years. There may be, there may, you may be married to an apostate. Your children may have walked away from the faith. There may be people that you like shed blood with in college and campus ministry and you were going to change the world and now who have walked away. But Paul says, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, they can still be taught. And so there is a, there is a, there is a measure of hope. There is a measure of grace that is held out even to that point. But the question for you and for me, though, is what is your posture to faith? What is your posture to your sin? What is your posture to your path? And Paul's going to tell us wherever we are on the spiritual spectrum today, there's only one direction to go, and that's towards Christ. That is towards the gospel of grace. This is the way Paul says this, and I'll read this and we'll be done. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, well, what a great word. But I press on to make it my own. Do you hear that action? Press. Because Christ Jesus has made his own, me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you fighting this season? And if so, who's your primary battle with? Paul says, by the grace of God, let's engage the good fight of faith together in Jesus. Let's pray.